Welcome to the Success Inspired Podcast, a business and personal development podcast to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential. And now here is your host, Vit Muller. Hello, everybody. Vit here from Success Inspired Podcast. My guest today is a leadership speaker, consultant, trainer, and coach. Over his 20-year career, he's led over 2,000 groups in 25 countries, and his clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft. He has led and designed seminars on numerous leadership topics, including team building, conflict management, communication, peak performance, innovation, engagement, and change. Please welcome to the show, Elaine Hunkins. Thank you so much, Vit, for the introduction, and I am really excited for our conversation today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Alan. Great to have you on the show. And since I've already introduced you a little bit, what's something that not many people know about you? Uh, most people don't know that I come from a family of musicians. Uh, my father's entire family, he's one of five siblings. They're all professional musicians, as were both of his parents. And I played the violin starting at the age of five, really seriously, all the way until I was 18. In fact, on my 13th birthday, I performed in Carnegie Hall with the Youth Symphony Orchestra of New York. So, little known fact about me. That's a famous place. I've heard about it. Carnegie Hall. You know, they, they say, you know, the joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, yeah. practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, let's talk about your, your expertise. You're a leader. <clears throat> you coach leadership. Yeah. What were the first steps um, that, you know, in, your, in your career that, that led to be you know, a leadership coach? Yeah. So for me, I've always been really interested in people, specifically, why do people do what they do? And if you think about it, doesn't matter what industry you work in as a leader, you're first and foremost, you're in the people business. So I think that was the connection there, right? Because it's all about working with people. You know, if we want to get anything done, that takes leadership with, with yourself and with others. So I studied lots of different things. When I was in undergrad in college, I was a dabbler and I studied psychology. I studied theater. I studied Buddhist scripture. And then I actually went on and trained as a professional actor, which in some ways has a lot to do with motivation and behavior because as an actor, you are putting yourself under the microscope and trying to inhabit other characters that you play in drama. And so from there, I got involved doing teaching using arts in education, leadership training, and conflict resolution facilitation in junior high schools and high schools in New York City. And from there, a friend of mine said, have you ever thought about working in businesses? I went, no. He said, maybe you should check it out. To make a long story short, I ended up moving into doing corporate training and involved with management and leadership training. And I found that working with adults and doing this kind of work felt like the sweet spot. And that was in 1997. So fast forward 23 years, I've worked with over 2000 groups in 25 countries. And I, the great thing about working with so many groups is you start to see patterns emerge. So a big part of my focus and my thinking on leadership isn't just theoretical. It isn't just like I sit around and write books in my office. It's actually having been out in the field, working with training, coaching, and especially listening to leaders and the stories that they tell, specifically what they struggle with, because mm. it's a lot harder than it looks. So in a way, it's like what you said at the beginning, where you, know, you practice violin, it's, you know, it's you're honing on that, 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 that instrument, 
you keep on practicing, you get to Carnegie Hall in the same way. You've been, uh, you know, you've been going around the world, talking to these different business groups, and honing on your on your skills. Yeah, yeah, yep. very much. So. Yeah, the, your your new book, uh, Navigating Trust, promises to be a roadmap for leadership. Can you unpack for the listeners what is that roadmap look like? Sure. Well, the, the, just to be clear, the new book is called Cracking the Leadership Code. I had another <laughs> ebook called Navigating Trust, but no worries about that. So the book's called Cracking the Leadership Code. The subtitle are The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And yeah, it is designed to be a roadmap to help any aspiring leader to basically shorten their leadership learning curve. Again, yeah, you can spend your whole life practicing and getting somewhere, but wouldn't it be helpful to have a guide to accelerate that, that success? progress. Mm. So the three secrets of the subtitle are connection, communication, and collaboration. And the book is designed to introduce these main three principles, but then to dive deep into the good, the bad, and the ugly as to, you know, what's going to trip you up as a leader? What are the pitfalls you'll fall into? And then how do you get out of those? And what are the specific practical tools that you can start to apply or to use the word we used before to practice, to increase your leadership skill? Because mm-hmm. leadership is a skill that is developed over time. Some people ask, you know, are leaders born or are they made? Well, last time I checked, every leader was born. No one was hatched. However, once you're born, that is just the ticket to entry. And some people might have certain natural giftings and abilities, but if you really want to develop yourself, you're going to need to practice and strengthen these core connection, communication, and collaboration skills. Now, talking more specifically, what are some of those um, collaboration skills? Okay, let's talk about collaboration. Sure. So... If we look at getting other people to work well, both with you and with each other, one of the key elements that leaders need to do, and I call it becoming a motivational choice architect. Now, what I mean by that is if you try to make someone else be motivated, you're basically resorting to the old style command and control. Like you're going to be motivated. You're going to be, and they're going to like, no, I'm not like, don't, you know, that doesn't work. So instead it's almost like we've got to use some Aikido, right? It's like like martial arts, you know how you work with the energy that's there already. And so instead, what you want to do is think about how can you design an environment where people can perform at their best. And what I found in my research is that there are four essential needs that people need to have satisfied for them to perform at their best. And I'll just walk through these in turn. So the first need that we have is safety. So people need to feel safe. They have to feel physically safe. They also have to feel psychologically safe because when people feel safe, it actually allows their central nervous system to relax and it then frees up their executive functioning of their prefrontal cortex. And they're not all in that fight, flight, freeze state and they can relax and focus on doing the higher level cognitive creative problem solving they're trying to do in their job. So safety is the first big need. Second big need is energy. I mean, you know this from your work, Mm. is that people do better when they're energized. So an easy example, anyone who's worked in an office or in a business knows what it's like to sit through a two or two and a half or three hour meeting that hasn't taken a break. And, you know, you're just going and going and you're just like, I can't go. You literally cannot focus because physiologically we are not wired to go that long with high level thinking. 
So one thing to consider, I call it use the 90 minute rule. We basically have a 90 minute threshold and then we're done. So as a leader, design breaks, put breaks into your time. I know that sounds so common sense, but design breaks into things so that people can refresh. Now that's a shift. A lot of people think, what, if we're taking a break, we're wasting time. It's like, no, not taking a break is actually way less effective. So what you think you're gaining in efficiency, you're actually losing in effectiveness. So we've covered the first two. We've talked about safety. We've talked about energy. Third thing is people want a sense of ownership over their work. They want freedom and autonomy to put their own take on it. So yes, you want to define the outcome they're trying to get to and frame the project, but don't micromanage every little step of the way. Give them some latitude to express themselves because when people do that and they take ownership, they are so much more engaged in the process. Mm. So that's third, it's ownership. And the last one is giving people a strong sense of purpose. The fact is there are certain things that will get you out of bed, getting started because it matters to you. People want to feel like what they're doing is bigger than just a, a job or a paycheck or a transaction. They want to feel like what they're doing really matters. I'll give you a quick example. So I was working with a medical device company in Minnesota a few years ago, and this company makes very high tech devices to help um, release time release medication that's in a machine that's internal for recovering cancer patients. So I was there to work at the corporate office, but they said, you know, we have our factory right across the street. Would you like to go and take a factory tour before we get started? I said, I'd love to. So I took this tour of the factory and I saw someone working there. Her name was April and she was doing some work that was this amazing combination of high tech, but also high skilled craftsmanship. And so she was working away at this little thing in this high tech machines and she was taking a break. And, and I came over to, her, I said, April, my name's Alain. I'm here for on a factory tour. Can I just ask you some questions about what you do? And so can you explain what exactly you're doing here? And I'm expecting her to explain how she's going to take this wire and it gets soldered. I mean, that's what I'm expecting her to say. Yeah, like a technical answer. Yeah, a technical answer. And she says, well, I help save people's lives. What do you do? And I was like, whoa, like she was, that's the big picture. That's the purpose. That's amazing. And, and I found out that was no accident because what the company does is every quarter, so four times a year, they have an all company town hall where they invite patients who have used their products to come and speak to all the employees about what a difference their product has made in their lives. And so April's clued in because she's hearing it directly from the end. So many of us feel so disconnected from the work that we do. So if we as leaders can give people that sense of purpose, and it can be anything, you could be sweeping floors somewhere, but you know what? Those floors need to get clean. Every role has a purpose. And as leaders, we have to remind people what that purpose is regularly and passionately. No, that's, uh, that's amazing. And that's so true for so many other businesses as well. Like, Yeah. Right. In fitness, good example too, right? I mean that's 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 where I'm from. We you know, at the gym we do these regular challenges and at the beginning when we do an info night and we're trying to get a couple of people to share their story on their past challenges that they have tried with us before, to share it with, with the new people, but also share it and, and our staff and trainers are there and it really sort of helps to sink in that purpose, like you said, like what did that do for them? Like they've lost weight, they've increased fitness they may be a parent parent they've got kids now they've got more fitness they feel healthier for them um it really sort of connects the dots doesn't it 
Oh, completely. It does. I mean, it reminded me of a story. I met a, a, an executive. He must have been in his mid-60s. And he told me this story. You might be familiar. I know this is big in the UK, something called Park Run, these not-for-profit community-sponsored runs. They're like 5Ks and they're non-competitive. And he basically trained to do a park run. And he told this whole story about the reason he did it was because he wanted to be able to be around for his grandchildren. And it's just, again, the way he told the story He's crying. He's telling the story. I'm crying because it's so powerful. I mean, you know, we can think of it as, oh, I just want to get in shape, but there's a bigger why. And if we can connect into the bigger picture, why are we doing this? Whether it's, you know, I want to dance at my daughter's wedding or I want to be able to be there, whatever that might be, suddenly you feel the passion and the energy starts to come. And that's such a huge way to help people to collaborate and be motivated. Absolutely. And for those of you guys who listen to this podcast, you know that we've repeated this many times over. When you're trying to figure out your um, your true motivation, what really is there for you, like why are you really doing it, why are you really doing it? It's like peeling that onion, like trying to go three levels deeper, like ask yourself, okay, if, if it allows you to do this, if you can lose a bit of weight, what will that allow you to do then? Okay, well, you'll be able to move better. You'll be able to move lighter. You'll be able to do more. If you can do more, what will that allow you to do? Maybe you can take on another project, maybe another sidekick. Maybe it allow you to increase um, additional income, support your family. There's so many other reasons, but trying to go deeper than just just the typical like I want to get a six pack or that superficial aesthetic yeah. goal, right? Yeah, that's great. In fact, what you just described it in, in my work, we call it, it's an exercise. It's called the five whys, where you take the top level and whatever the answer is, then you ask, and so why is that important? And then you come up with the next level and then you ask and you try to go, hopefully five, maybe it's three or four. Mm. But the idea is you discover that deeper motivation behind you. If you get to somewhere at the end that you thought you knew already, it turns out that the journey is amazing. Now, you said one of the four elements, if you can call it elements, the first one being safety, like when people feel safe to do their yes. work, then they can sort of self-actualize. And it reminded me of the Maslow's pyramid in a way. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where it's sort of coming from? Well, yes and no. It's interesting because everyone, everyone goes to Maslow because that's the most mm. famous one, but there's yeah. a number of other kind of hierarchies and this ideas around needs. So whether it's Maslow or Piaget, there's a whole bunch out there. But yeah, there is a certain level of that. It's like the fact is if you, and you know, you want to look at the physiological needs, like we talked about with energy in some ways is a Maslow thing. Like, look, if you are really tired or really hungry or really have to go to the bathroom, you're not going to listen to a thing I have to say. It's just mm -hmm. not that important, right? So certain needs outweigh other ones at certain moments. But it's interesting because, yeah, for sure, when it comes to safety, it's really important, specifically around psychological safety. They did some really great research at Google to find out what are the things you can do to increase psychological safety. And actually, a couple of big things. Number one is as the leader is you modeling vulnerability. Basically, people will only be as open as you are as a leader. So you have to model it and set the tone, which means be courageous enough to share when things aren't going well and go like, hey, you know, this is, you know, it doesn't mean you're not competent. It just means that, you know, we're human. You know, you don't have to pretend to be a superhero. So that's the first thing. The other thing is if you're working with a team, you know, it's really easy at times to have just one or two people with a loud voices dominate. So making sure that everyone on the team gets equal amounts of airtime. So that we hear everyone's voice because until people have their voice in the room, they're not really fully engaged. 
yeah, that's so important, giving everybody opportunity and rather than trying to be the authority and my way or highway type of thing. It doesn't work, does it? No, that is, in fact, the whole beginning of the book, I go into why we call, I call it old school leadership, right? It's mm. very old school. And most of us know it because most leaders today still have inherited even parts of that. And that comes out of the industrial revolution. And, and why this is so important to understand is because remember, in the industrial revolution, we're talking at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, 95% of the organized labor force was working on the assembly line doing repetitive manual labor. So the leaders wanted people to behave like parts of the machine. In fact, they were, they were parts of the factory. And so the value proposition was you show up, you basically shut up and comply. We're going to teach you how to do something. And you're going to do that same thing, repetitive manual labor over and over again, every day, every week, every month, for years and years and years. That is not the world that we live in anymore. So if you just want mm. people to, to shut up and comply, you're in the wrong century. I mean, Henry Ford, who founded the Ford Motor Company, once famously said about his employees, he said, why is it when I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? I mean, we live in a digital technological knowledge work age. And the fact is everyone, even people at the front lines, I mean, think about like, let's say in the fitness industry, and let's say your frontline people are, you know, the people at the front desk of a health club or a personal trainer working directly with clients. I mean, they need to have their brains. They need to be creatively problem solving and addressing issues and noticing what's going on and critically thinking all day long and reacting. It isn't a repetitive thing. You're not, you're not, there's not the health club factory where you're just doing the same thing. And so that idea of being the commander and controller in chief is about as outdated as anything. Absolutely. I totally agree. Now on that same note, there's a fine balance between opening yourself up, showing a level of your vulnerability, trying to be a bit more friendly with your staff so that you know it's 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 a lot easier to connect with them. But then sometimes you also need to manage and you need to explain. Okay, well, especially when it comes to uh, performance, right? If there's an issues of performance, so yeah. how does one best navigate between those two areas? Because I mean, yeah. you got to be a bit of both. You can't be. You do. And this, right. is the, this, this is the nature, and this is what makes leadership so tricky because it's <clears> filled <throat> with paradoxes. On the one hand, you do, you need to be that compassionate, at times, open, vulnerable person. And at the same time, how do you, you have a business to run? You have performance to make sure you have targets to hit. And so that's why we have connection, communication, and collaboration. So one of the key ingredients to making sure that you can achieve the performance that's necessary is being super explicit about what expectations are before you get started. Because what ends up happening is if you don't make things clear up front, down the road, you get into those really uncomfortable conversations where you're thinking, well, they should know that they need to be performing there, but you've never said it. And so mm -hmm. it's being really clear because I'm sure you're familiar with the idea, and this is a big buzzword in certainly in the corporate world, is this idea of accountability, right? We have to hold people accountable. Now, it's my belief from the leadership lens is we actually don't hold other people accountable. What we do is we remind people of the commitments that they've made to us and to themselves, and we remind them to hold themselves accountable. So that way we are talking to them adult to adult, as opposed to this kind of very common 
parent-child dynamic that we see. Yeah, like I told you so. And yeah. I told you I'm the boss. That's why. I mean, because that's a very old parent-child dynamic. And you know how well that works with kids. Kids put up with it until they're teenagers. And then they stop putting <laughs> up with it. They're like, I'm not going to deal with this crap anymore. So anyway, so the key to being able to have that clarity is having some really clear boundaries and explaining to people, this is what it is. This is the expectation. Does that make sense? What questions do you have? And then as people are working towards achieving those targets, basically, if people are making progress and they're tracking along the way to achieve the targets, you're great. Celebrate, congratulate them. Great. And if they're not, the first impulse is to go in and say, hey, I'm noticing things aren't going towards the goal. How can I support you? What's getting in the way? How can I help? Right? So you're operating from that place first, as opposed to going, I don't know, Vit, you know, you said you were going to sell 10 new subscriptions this week and you only got five. You know, if you don't get to letter five, you're going to be out of a job. I mean, that's not the best way to do that, right? So it's recognizing how can I support and also helping people to understand, look, if you do not achieve certain results, there is a natural consequence. Like you might do with kids, right? There's natural consequences to your mm. behavior. And that way people are empowered to make decisions empowered to ask for help. And you see your role as a leader is I'm here to support you in the process. And that look, there are times where it, it doesn't work. There's times where you have someone who's in a role and it's not a good fit. But because you've treated them with a level of respect, when you realize it's time to part ways, it isn't this horrible, you know, nightmare of, oh, I've got to come in and like, let them like, no, it's like, it, they're pretty clear on where they already stand, because you've had these very courageous conversations along the way. And why I say courageous is because it takes courage to be able to speak this clearly. Most of us don't have modeling of leaders who did it this way, right? Mm. Most of us are having to make that up. So it feels really new. And so if you can find leaders who can mentor and model you in this way, it's great because it's really hard to do things that you've never seen practiced. I think coaching is is very effective when it comes to that. When it comes to that um, communication with your employees um, in your business, to to in a way like sit down with them and sort of coach, you know, ask them those right coaching questions um, to get them think about solutions and the importance of it, and and sort of really get them to buy into it, right? Totally. I mean, what you just said about coaching and asking them questions, that's the ownership piece that we talked about. One of those needs in collaboration is that when you're coaching and instead of me saying things aren't working, it's like, hey, how do you think things are going? What could yeah. you, you know, asking the coaching questions, then they create their own solutions. They take ownership of it as opposed to stepping into that child dynamic role of like, okay, daddy, okay, mommy, you tell me what to do. So yeah, coaching. And, you know, I always suggest that, you know, leaders don't always have to be coaches but they should be coach-like in their approach, you know, and yeah, understanding and be, how to good, ask a good question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it could be as easy as, as learning a couple of those really good questions and just put them in your toolbox. Because yeah. then those meetings, when you have those meetings and, and, you, and you run those meetings in this way, they become a lot more collaborative and people don't feel like, um, you know, I'm here and you're here. It just becomes we're on the same level here and let's just have a, you know, good, Good conversation, um, yeah. productive conversation. Yeah, but what you're, I love what you're saying here, because what you're alluding to is it's the willingness that leaders to do that, to ask those questions. It means you get to actually take off the superhero cape. You know, so many leaders think, well, I'm in charge. I have to show everyone I know the answers to everything and I can do it all. It's like, no, you don't. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to have all the answers. 
Why don't you let your guard down, be a real person, and instead invite people to come on the journey with you instead of follow me. I'm in charge. I know where things are. No, that's, no, that's, that's again, very old school, like the soul hero. You don't need to be the hero. In fact, what you can do is try to make everyone else heroes because they'll remember that. And going back to those relationships, I mean, we're all humans, even though you might be in a top position, you're still a human. You still want to be, you still want to feel like other people value you and, and you've got connections. And, and those could be the employees. So if you're, if you're always like up the top, um, you're going to have those days where you feel like, oh, man, they don't understand me. I mean, in a way, you kind of fit, sometimes you feel like, I wish I could just have a friendly conversation with them. And, but if you've always been that authoritarian, you know, that, that, you know, I'm the boss, it's never going to happen, right? So that's, that's the other positive, like, benefit of, of it, right? Oh, completely, completely. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a, a quick story about this guy named Matt that kind of brings this whole thing to life. So I met Matt. He was a district manager for a national in the US, a national fast food franchise. And so at the time, the company had 100 districts, so 100 district managers. Each district manager oversaw about 10 different fast food restaurants. When I met Matt, he was ranked number one out of all hundred. So I said, Matt, that's amazing. You're number one. Have you always been such a top performer? He went, no, no, no. When I started, I was like 84th on the list out of hundred. And I was down there for a long time. I said, well, 84th to number one, that's a pretty huge change. What happened? Tell me. He said, when I started, my mentality was, oh, he just got promoted. I'm the district manager. I'm the boss, I'm in charge. And he thought his role was to be the fixer. And so every morning they would print out a summary of their key performance metrics about every store, revenue per store, you know, drive-through, wait times, customer satisfaction. They'd, for every single store, they'd have these. And they call them the hot list. So first thing Matt would do is look at the hot list and he'd see what was in red, right? So what's not measuring up in his 10 stores? And then he'd hop in his car and he would drive from store to store. And he'd tell his restaurant managers, you're not doing this. You got to fix this. You got to do this. You gotta... And he did that like that. And he was hustling. He was working really hard and his results worse not getting any better. Yeah. He stuck. There was turnover because he was kind of a jerk. He admitted, he's like, I was kind of a jerk. Well, especially if you've got so many of those locations, it's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was kind of, kind of trying to fly in, clean it up, fly out, clean it up. He's doing this. He did that for years. And he said, finally, I realized people don't want to work for a fixer. They want to work with a leader. And so I totally changed my approach. He said, I started going in and I talked to the restaurant manager. And the first thing I'd say is, Hey, Vit, how was your weekend? How are you? How's your family? And, I, and actually build some human-to-human -human relationships. Mm -hmm. And then he'd pull out the hot list, but he wouldn't say, this is in red. You aren't doing this. He'd say, here's the data. What do you think we should do? Like you were saying, ask him some good questions. Like, what yeah. do you think we should do? What's the strategy here? And then they would co-create a solution together. And what he said is, and that's when he started to climb because people started to build relationships with him. Employees would stay longer. So they were starting to coach each other. And he said, the really cool thing about all this, he said, I realized that the key to making the numbers is to actually stop focusing on the numbers because the numbers are only a lagging indicator of the behavior people that take care of the numbers. And then he said, this is the coolest part because he said, when I was number 84, I was so much more stressed and I was working so much harder than I am now at number one. And our whole team, we are having so much more fun as well. So it's a real mindset shift that leads to new behaviors. But it starts with that mindset of getting out of the idea that you have to be this in-charge superhero. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what were some of the... Let's talk back, back to you, back to your own sort of coaching business. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. So... 
What were some of the toughest experiences that um, that you've had in starting growing your your business so far? How did you overcome them, and what did the experience did these experiences do for you? Yeah, I think one of the biggest uh, challenges I had to overcome was my own fear of kind of putting myself out there. You know, I started in this world doing training for other people's training companies, and I was good at it. I was comfortable, but there was a gnawing part of me that was like, you know what? I want to do bigger and better things, and I want to write a book and be out on my own and do this. And so I think one of the biggest challenges was stepping out of my own comfort zone and stepping into the unknown territory because. I think like a lot of people, I know that I'm good at certain, like a very small band of stuff and anything outside of that, I would tend to, uh, I, I can't, like I would feel that nervous. I, I can't do that. Somebody else does that. And then I would go back to my comfort zone. Mm. So, and I found I was doing that for years. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to stretch. I'm going to have to try stuff. And then part of it was realizing how to reframe those feelings of discomfort. So I used to be like, oh, I can't do this. And I'd go back to my comfort zone. Well, in the last few years with this book coming out and writing it and stepping out and finding an agent and finding a publisher, when I get those feelings, I started to go, oh, I know what this feels like. This is what learning feels like. This is what stretching out of your comfort zone feels like. This is what progress and growth feel like. So I've actually learned how to reframe those bodily sensations in a way that get me excited. It's like, yeah, you know what? I never did this before. And, you know, even I remember it's really cool, you know, when my book was just about finished, I sent out drafts to get endorsements from people. And I reached out to a bunch of people, including a couple, I mentioned one guy before being a Nobel prize winner. Well, I, I reached out to another Nobel prize winner named Dan Kahneman, if he'd endorse my book. And he emailed me back, like within the same day, he said, no, I won't. And I won't because I only endorse books of people who I know who've done the original research. So I got that email. And then I remember I had to pick up my kids from school that afternoon. Somebody said, how's your day? I went, my day is awesome. <laughs> I just got rejected by a Nobel Prize winner, you know, because I realized if I had never sent the email, I would have never gotten a response. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it goes back to the old, I think it's attributed to Wayne Gretzky, right? The old, you always miss 100% of the shots you never take. And so I'm finding that as I step further and further into my business, like when I started, I used to be really like, oh, I don't feel comfortable talking to that person there such a high status, you know, I can't, you know, they're, they're famous, they're this, or, you know, they're well known in my field. Today, I'll talk to anybody. I'm like, hey, great, because they're people. And I also believe in myself and believe in the work. So I think getting out of your own fear about stepping forward, to me, that's massive, because the, all the other stuff, those are logistical details. I mean, yeah, you can learn this, that, but until you kind of start to conquer that fear, at least for me, I was stuck for a long time. Mm. Now, back to your beginning, I mean, at the start, you know, like you said, like you, you learned the instruments, then you, you started, you know, teaching kids at the junior school, um, helping them. Where, who were your role models when you were growing up? Yeah, so interesting. I had, you know, some role models of what to do and some role models of what not to do. For sure. And I think, you know, I think we all do like, I'm going to be like this person. I'm not going to be like that person. So one of my big role models in terms of working hard, because I'd say one of, you said, what's one of your superpowers mm -hmm. is, oh, if I decide I'm going to do something, I'm like a dog with a bone. I mean, I can get like, I dig in sometimes to the point of like, my wife would be like, you need to stop and eat dinner. Like, you know, like I just <laughs> like, I'm like, she's like, you know, do you know, it's 1130 at night and you've been sitting there for, I'm like, 
have I really like, I'm just, I'm just going on this thing. Mm. Um, and I actually credit my grandmother for that. My grandmother and my mother raised me and I, you know, my, my grandmother is born in 1909 and she survived the second world war and, you know, and she put her daughter in hiding. So my, my grandmother, my, my mother are both Jewish and they were living in Europe and it was intense. And my grandmother was actually arrested and survived a concentration camp and survived. And there was something about knowing her story and knowing her and she was, you know, on the one hand, she was tenacious and she said, you can work. If you work at something, you can make it happen. At the same time, she was also emotionally pretty shut down from all the trauma. I mean, her mm. husband was killed, her mother and father were killed. So it, that experience scarred her in a lot of ways. So, you know, I think I got a lot of blessings and I also had to deal with some of the baggage that came along with that. So she was definitely a role model in terms of always thinking about stuff. You know, we oftentimes ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I've been asked that question. And I just remember being a kid from my grandmother, I got this, that was, I want to be happy. It wasn't a thing. It was more a state of being, which I think in a lot of ways has freed me up to follow what I've been interested in. And because I would have never guessed that this was the path. It only makes sense looking backwards. But while I was doing this, one thing sort of led to another in a very organic way. So for sure, she's been a role model. And then along the way, I have just had the opportunity to meet some really great mentors and teachers. And, you know, people ask me a lot about who's your mentor. And I always say, time out, time out. Like not, let's, let's change mentor from capital M to lowercase m. That I don't think you should have one all seeing. It's not like Luke and Yoda, right? While they're learning to be a Jedi. It, it's how do you get lots of mentors? And there's different mentors for different parts of your life. And, you know, so for someone, a friend of mine, Gary, is really good. He runs his own business and he's very entrepreneurial and very comfortable around money and investing. So when I wanted some advice around that area, I go to Gary. Another friend of mine is really great around physical health and well-being and nutrition. So when I want input there, I go to him. I don't go to Gary. So it's just finding who are the people in your life that can teach you because we are all surrounded by teachers who, if we ask them, are usually pretty willing to share their expertise because they want to pay it forward. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And what I like about going back to what you said, you know, uh, who do you want to be and and just be happy, you know? Uh, I like that because it takes away having to decide something specific, something, you know, based on like what society, you know, perceives success. You're really yeah. just doing it for yourself. And over those years, you'll find what you enjoy really doing but as yeah. long as it's something that you really enjoy doing and it keeps you happy, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, right? And yeah. those things will change as well. Like, I mean, things change. Your career might change. I mean, of course. I, I was happy before when I was trying to pursue career becoming a chef when I was in my, in my um, early 20s. Then I changed over and moved to fitness, and that's where I find my happiness. It's not that I don't like cooking, but just, yeah, just a bit of a shift. Yeah, I love what you say about success. I think, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in somebody else's definition of success. And you've got to define what success looks like for you on your own terms. And here's the thing. I mean, today with technology and the internet, if you want to play the comparison game, you will lose every time because you're comparing yourself against 7 billion people. So let's say your success metric is money. Guess what? Unless your name is Jeff Bezos, somebody else has more money than you. You know, if it's good looks, someone else is probably better looking or in better shape than you. So you can always feel bad about yourself. I think the key to all of this is instead of focusing on what's the outcome I want to get to, decide what are your values and fall in love with the process of working at that every day. Because 
the joy actually comes from the work itself, whatever the work is for you. You know, for me, the work is around leadership and helping inspire other people and their potential. You know, other people, it might be playing an instrument or building a house or fitness or cooking or whatever that is, finding that process. Because as soon as we play that comparison game, I think we're sunk. Mm, yeah. And then you start also focusing too much on materialistic, um, you know, KPIs. Um, yeah. Where, and I really enjoy, like, for me, it's like, the quality of the relationships that I can have, the people at the gym, you know, people on my podcasts, my guests, people anywhere I meet. Like if you can have a really good conversation with somebody even you didn't know maybe an hour ago, if you can have a really good conversation, I think that's a I think that's more meaningful. Yeah. And and, and realizing that we all have different choices about what that means. But recognizing that if you go after something that isn't part of your core values ultimately you're going to pay a price. Like, you know, I've, you know, that for me, I'll just share my own personal story around that. So when my wife and I decided that we want to have a family thinking about the quality of life, how much money do we have to earn? How many, so we thought, where are some other places we could live? And so instead of making a list of geographical cities, we actually made a list of values. What are our values? You know, one thing was access to nature. Another thing was, well, I was traveling, so close access to an airport. Another thing was uh, quality of, of, of the, the environment. Um, also a place where we could be like-minded people. So we made, then we started mapping this all. And then we moved to where I live now, which is a small town in Western Massachusetts, which is a college town. So there's a lot of intellectual, cultural, progressive, interesting life. And then the kids were born, the first one. And then I had some, because my work was basically the more days I was traveling and working, the more money I would make. But then there we have the trade-off. It's time versus money. So I made some decisions. You know, once the kids were born, I was like, I'm going to pull back from working as much because actually I'm never going to get the time back with little babies and infants. So I took three months off unpaid because in the US we don't have paid leave because we're crazy. Um, <laughs> so I took three months off when both kids were born and I pulled way back even later because for me, part of how I define success, I don't look back at my kids growing up and going, ah, oh, I missed that. You know, I wish I had been there. I was like, no, I, I don't have regrets about that. Now, have I done it perfectly? Absolutely not. But I think if you have a clear sense of what you want to do and what's important, I mean, you talked about, you know, easy to get caught up in the material stuff. I mean, there's a great book out there. Some people probably know it. It's called Your Money or Your Life. And it actually inspired what's called the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early. So for anyone who's interested in think it, that book changed my thinking around money, because what they basically say is money is what you're willing to trade your life energy for. So for example, let's say you work at a job and you make a hundred bucks an hour. Okay. So if you decide you go to the store and you want to buy some trinket, whatever it is, and it costs $500, eh? you go, is this thing worth five hours of my life? Because that's what it costs, right? So, so when you start to think about it in those terms, you go, oh my gosh, you know, what do I actually want to spend my money and my time on? So instead of just thinking of it another way, so it's a great resource and it, you know, it made me think about, yeah, what's important, what's not important. So for example, when I was whatever, 1990, 21, 22 years old, I bought a Honda Civic, <laughs> Honda Civic, new, um, with not even air conditioning, you know, no, no nothing. And um, I drove that car for 22 years. You know, I paid it, it was paid off. And for me, I just wanted to, I wanted transportation. I didn't need status. I didn't need to impress anybody with my car. It worked and it didn't, it worked really well. 
And so I was happy to keep that car. So I had that car from the time I was 21 until I was 43. And that's a long time. <laughs> so I just share that because I'm okay with that choice. Other people might like, how can you drive? Like, you know, my brother would see me, how can you drive that old dirt bag of a car? I'm like, because it runs, it's fine, you know? So it's all about what's important to you. And you have to align your values to the behaviors you have in your life. Mm, that, that makes perfect sense. And I like what you said. And if you were happy with a car that is working and it's getting you from A to B, why would you need to change it, right? I mean, un unless you really value, you might be yeah. somebody who values more luxury and that's fine. You might want to have- It is totally fine. Right? Everyone has their own rating system. I'm not here to judge, but it's, I think what's important is for you to clarify what your own set of criteria are. Too many people, I think, are playing by someone else's set of rules. Mm. And I think you have, to, you have to define the rules of the game of success for yourself because otherwise you're not really playing the game fully and well. And if you're spending too much time scrolling through Instagram and checking out other people's lives, maybe it's time to switch that phone off and go for a walk and to really yeah. sort of figure out what your own values are. Because I think yeah. that's a that can be very poisonous if you're spending too much time checking other people's things. Yeah, completely. Um, especially with like things like Instagram when people put their filters and make their life look better than it really is. Yeah. <clears throat> Now... Tell us about those moments when you started to see success in your coaching business. What did, how did that impact your lifestyle? Um, well, success in my, it's funny because for me, success in my coaching business is really, it, I define success as when someone has had some kind of a breakthrough moment, that insight, that aha, or like, ah, oh, and then they go off and, and something that we've done together makes a change. So for me, it's, you could say that's very, you know, how did that impact my success? I just think that for me, it's just the process has been increasing the frequency of those moments as well as the quantity and the intensity and duration of those moments for myself and for the people that I work with. Um, so I just feel like now, for example, with the book being launched, I've gotten emails from people literally around the world who said, you know, I've read your book. I've started applying things. This is making a difference. And in my mind, just getting those emails, I'm like, this is, if nothing else ever happened with the book. I'd be happy, you know, like already it's had the impact because, you know, I'm focused on how can I share this with other people and move things forward. So in a way, it's like your, your currency is the impact. How much impact yeah. can you, can you make? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And now obviously I have, you know, bills to pay and, you know, I want to provide for my family. So looking at what's the value proposition for what I do and making sure that there's that. But once I get to that level, it's ultimately, it's about how can I be of service to other people? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm a huge believer that if you, you know, the, in the, you call it the law of reciprocity or karma is that if you keep putting out value, value will come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and in a way, exactly like you said, like, because if you're focusing on how much money I'm going to make on this or how much money I'm going to make on that, you're too focusing on that monetary amount yeah. and you lose track of what, what was that? The, the the truly important thing that you were really doing it for and that is yeah. in your case you know impact impacting more people to be better leaders you know that if you're going to make better impact on a company's leadership they're going to make more money and that will exactly. result in you you know getting paid maybe even extra some bonus from your client because they were really happy yeah they will refer you more and but exactly absolutely makes perfect sense yeah. now tell me something that is that is true but nobody else agrees with you on. 
Oh, okay. We're going to get into some good controversial stuff. Um, so here's something that I don't know if people don't agree or disagree, but this is something that we don't talk about. So something that I think is true, you know, we talked earlier about why leadership is so challenging. I think one of the reasons why it is so challenging is that so many of us, so this is what, this is what I believe. I think so many of us have internalized power struggle in the typical human to human relationship. And I say that because most of us were raised, I know I certainly was, by parents who at some point defaulted to do this because I'm your dad or I'm your mom. That's why, like basically at that some point. And I just think that creates this dynamic of power on the one hand, but fear and shame on the other hand, right? So the child in that situation is the shamed one, is the fearful, afraid, like, <gasps> and, and, they, and they internalize that. And unless they do some really good work to deal with all of that internal fear and shame, what ends up happening is they grow up. And when they get into a position like a parent or a boss, they end up repeating the same behaviors again. Mm. And so I'm, I'm a big believer that one of the things that is sort of on, on cue for us to work on in the next 50 to 100 years of humanity, you know, we talk about rights for women and rights for all different sexual orientation. I think, you know, we look at rights, racial injustice, and making sure rights across different nationalities and colors, etc. I think we need to take a look at basically how we're raising children and the right, because I mean, I'm sure it's true where you are, but if I'm here and I go to the local supermarket and there's a parent who's got a kid in the, in the shopping cart and they're yelling at that kid, like, like, hey, you can stop. Like, we think that's okay, right? Like, that's normal. Like, that's considered okay. And I think, yeah, like, and again, this is my, totally my personal judgment. And I don't go over to them and say, hey, you really should stop rebelling at your kid because they're going to internalize the fear and shame. <laughs> so that's what I'm thinking, possibly. And look, and I've got, and I, the reason I know this is I've gotten it wrong with my kids. You know, my wife is way better at this than I am. But I think that is certainly an area that the less damage that we can do to children, and we're going to do some, it's just the nature of it. It's like life is real. But I think being aware of that and then helping people to just decrease the level of stress and tension because that all this creates a lot of tension and stress. And so for me, I think that if people start to think differently about power struggle and basically just not engaging in power struggle, you're going to see very different outcomes. And, and my own experience, and I'm going to credit my wife, who's the mom of our kids with 99% of doing this well, is that you know they talk about the terrible twos we never had that. I mean, my kids are teenagers now and they talk about teenagers rebelling, you know, like the kids go crazy. My kids, my, my daughter who's 13 will still sit on my lap. My son who's 16 will still sometimes walk along and then absentmindedly just hold my hand as we're walking down the street. You should grow up. You're going to be a man. Like, again, that's like, what's that meant? Like he wants to connect, you know, he loves me. I love him. He's my son. So it's just one of these things of the more that we can treat people at every age with respect the more respectful a world we're going to create. So that is my soapbox on that one, Vid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, back to that power struggle, right? If when the kids are really, really little, yeah, you know, how do you go about it? Because if they throw up the tantrum and they start screaming, you're talking about, you know, that, you know, don't let in to that power struggle, don't let in to it. Do you mean like um, trying to ignore it or... Not, not, no. not, not ignored, but like, you know, if they're throwing a tantrum, yeah. there's nothing you can do. I mean, what do you do? 
And well, especially if it happens in a, in a shopping mall, I mean. That's, oh yeah, of course, exactly. You're exactly. the pressure of the of the society, you know, all people. Yeah, other yeah. People. It, it's interesting. So uh, it's a great question. So the kids throwing a tantrum. So my question to you, if you're the parent of a child who's throwing the tantrum, and this is actually what my wife said to me when my kid threw a tantrum, my son, she said, "What were you doing the 15 minutes before the tantrum?" Were you focused on him? Were you focused on your own stuff? Because, you know, for example, I've been on plane rides, right? I actually flew from Newark to Sydney. It's a long plane ride, by the way. And, you know, it's like whatever it was, 13, 14, it was a lot, whatever, it was a lot of hours in the plane. And I remember that when we had our son on the plane, like we were totally engaged and focused with him. And I say we, mostly my wife, but, you know, just like keeping it. And so it's when you don't pay attention that when the tantrum comes and it's also why are you as a parent taking it personally i think somehow we think when a kid is freaking out and having that tantrum that somehow it's going to reflect badly on us and he's mm. two he's three instead like so instead of getting on you better shut your mouth because because what's happening if you're coming if you have that charge it's because you're worried about what people are going to think about you not about your kid and so i think if we can just hold space you know the idea is that emotions come and they go. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you can feel something and I'm sure you've had the feeling. I know I did. You know, there were times when like I broke up with my first girlfriend. I'm like, oh, my world is over. It's like, and I, that feeling, it will pass eventually. And so just realizing that that tantrum, if we can just hold, we talked about psychological safety, giving that child some space and some air to let that go and then move on. But it's hard because you have to sit in the fire with that intensity. And most of us aren't that comfortable with emotional intensity, our own or anyone else's. So we want to shut it down. We want to make it wrong. And that just perpetuates the cycle of fear and shame. Mm -hmm. Any advice you'd like to give somebody looking to um, be a better leader? Wow. There's a lot of advice, but I'm going to share my number one top tip for being a better leader which is if you're serious about getting better as a leader, look to other people and ask them for feedback on how you're doing. People are notoriously bad at judging ourselves. What you need to do is reach out to people and not just your friends and your mom who's gonna tell you you're wonderful, but go to the people who will give you the unvarnished truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Say, hey, I'm working on this. I wanna be a better leader. What do you think I do well? And more importantly, what do you think I could be doing even better? And get more than one or two people, you know, get five, six, 10. And then when they give you that feedback, don't justify it. Don't try to explain it. Just say, thank you. And then write it down, have it somewhere captured and then review it and think, okay, which of all the things that I heard, am I going to start to work on first? Because, and it's something that you've got to want to do, because if you feel like you're doing it for somebody else, you're not going to do it. So finding that intrinsic motivation, but number one thing is seek out feedback and then start applying it that's what i'd recommend excellent i love it thank you Alan. a lot of valuable advice on this interview now people who listen to this show who are listening to this interview right now and who would like to connect with you for some more help uh, with your skill sets uh, in leadership how can they find you Sure. Well, the easiest place to find me is if you go, the book has its own website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. While you're there, you can learn all about the book. You can actually order it, or you can actually download the first chapter for free right there and preview the book. That'll take you, that takes you to a subpage of the alainhunkins.com 
website. So you can scroll around, you can find out more about the work that I do, which is around basically either working with individuals and or teams all under the bigger umbrella of how to become a better leader. And you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, you can email me directly. Since you've listened this far, I call this, you're in the end of the podcast club because not everyone listens to the end, is you can, <laughs> uh, you can email me directly at Alain, A-L-A-I-N, at AlainHunkins.com. And I answer all questions that people have around leadership. Excellent. Now, at the beginning, we also talk about some online course that you're, um, you've got, by now you've got available. Is there a particular offer that you wanted to provide to our listeners about that? Well, yeah. I mean, so on this is this is starting in October, though. So this is mm-hmm. the issue with. Um, so I'm I'm going to be running, and this may be happening depending on when we we air. But I may be running it again. I'm going to be offering a 30 day online leadership challenge, where it's basically taking a lot of the key learnings from my book, but we're going to be putting it online. So just in a few minutes a day, with an intact closed community, we'll be using some of the top secrets of positive psychology and habit formation and gamification. And just a few minutes a day to start practicing how to become a better connector, better communicator, and better collaborator to make you a better leader. And so that'll be on the website too. Right now it's there under uh, alanhunkins.com slash 30-day leadership challenge. You can find it on, on the website. And that will probably become a recurring thing that will happen a few times a year. So if people are interested in that, they can look at that as well. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put all the details in the show notes for you guys listening. Um, if you're listening to this show on Apple iTunes, um, you won't find any links because Apple doesn't allow me to put any links in there. But if you are looking for all the details, um, simply head over to the successinspiredpodcast.com. And in the show notes of this episode, what you'll find is full transcript. Um, you'll find timestamps. If you ever if you ever want to come back to any particular area that we discuss on this and this episode, you'll be able to find those in the timestamps and just simply click and you'll be able to listen to that particular segment. And you also find all the links for Alain's book and, and other resources. And if you want to connect with me, you'll find my links there. Or you can just find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm all over the social media and simply look for um, that bit Miller. So T H A T. D-I-T-M-U-L-L-E-R. And that, Alain, has been, it's been great pleasure to have you on your show. Great talking to you about your journey and leadership and everything. Uh, I look forward to hopefully, you know, follow up on this maybe in a couple of months' time. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening today as well. Uh, everybody have a great rest of your day. Stay, stay inspired, stay productive, stay successful. <laughs>